Father, thank you for that truth that in the midst of so many sandy options out there that we try to build our life upon that will, in the end, only let us down, that there is actually a true foundation on which we can stand. Father, I pray to that end that you would speak through your servants very imperfect and feeble lips, so that indeed those you have brought here tonight would be caused to stand firm. And from that firm foundation, go out into the world with love and care for their neighbor. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again to Epiphany. Glad you guys could make it out here tonight on uh, this cold and rainy evening. My name's Eric, in case you didn't recognize me or in case you haven't met me before. Um, <laughs> and in case you did meet me and you just didn't realize it was me. Hi. Uh, so uh, we are continuing our series tonight in the book of Revelation. We're looking at Revelation chapter 10 and 11 tonight. And we're sort of, you know, we're, we're taking these bigger chunks of uh, Revelation, not because I'm trying to rush through it, but because they're they really are connected. They, the, you, you don't, I don't want to break up the narrative and then sort of leave us hanging. And so, uh, and this, this is an interesting passage tonight. But before we, we get into that, uh, I wonder if I've ever told you uh, how absolutely stubborn and hard-headed I was when I was a child. Um, in case I haven't told you, I, I was. Uh, I was what uh, some would refer to as a strong-willed child, and maybe even, maybe even a little bit today, a strong-willed adult, I don't know. But uh, uh, this is a true uh, story of what happened in my life when I was a kid. I'm not proud of it, but I am just telling you the honest truth. Uh, when I was little, anytime that I would get in trouble, uh, my parents would, of course, initially put me into my room, but not willing to admit defeat to my parents, I would then lay down on my bed, put my legs up against the wall, and kick the wall as much as I could until I got their attention. And you know, it's funny, it doesn't take long when you do that to get their attention. You know, just boom, 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 up against the wall. And sure enough, my father would come in, uh, you know, not excited, uh, and he would usually have, you know, a little paddle or something, spank me on my butt, and, you know, I didn't like it, and it hurt, and I might shed a tear, uh, but that wouldn't stop me. And so as soon as my father would leave, I can remember many times going into the toy box that I had in my room, Tonka trucks and such, and then proceeding to throw the Tonka trucks at the door of my room uh, until I got his attention again. And then my dad would come in, and it would usually result in even... This would go on... It seemed like for so long, and it seemed like that happened over and over and over again throughout my childhood, that I would just fight and I wouldn't give up. And this was true in so many spheres of, of life. The more, the more someone would try and push at me, the more obstinate I would become in, in pushing back. What does that have to do with anything? Well, as we enter chapter 10, the reader expects to hear, well, uh, 
some more judgment. Last week, we went over chapters 8 and 9 in Revelation, in which we saw a series of six judgments represented by the, the, the blasts of six trumpets uh, in preparation for the end of the world. And with each of these trumpet blasts, there was just, you know, terrible things that were coming upon the world. But we're told that by the end of chapter 9, the purpose of it, or, or at least the hope of it, was that it would bring the world to repent, that the world would see the air of their ways, sort of like when Egypt had faced the plagues, and they would stop their obstinate behavior. But like me as a child, by the end of the chapter in chapter 9, they have not given up. The world is not repentant. The world is not bowing the knee. And so we expect, as we enter chapter 10, okay, the final trumpet blast is coming, chapter 7, uh, the seventh trumpet blast is coming, and the world is finally going to come to an end. But instead, what we see is a new but related vision that John has given. But this vision is sort of an interlude. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this pattern in this book. After the six seals were opened in chapter 6, we were then given an interlude before the seventh seal, answering a question for us. And the question was, in the midst of all the judgment, in the midst of all the difficulty, who can stand? Who can make it? And we found out that it was those who were marked in the church, those who believed. Well, following that, in chapters 8 and 9, the six trumpets are, ble are blown and just as in the first six judgments with the seals, there's an interlude before the seventh trumpet blast. And this interlude seeks to answer a very important question for us as well. And that is, since these judgments in the trumpet blasts have not brought the people to repentance, is there anything else God can do that will bring people to repentance? The answer to that question, I think, is what our passage goes over today. What else is God prepared to do in order to bring people to him before the end of the world? But before we answer that question, let's hear the introduction of John's vision. Verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he sat with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, uh, this is, before I go on, very significant for our understanding of what will come next in our chapters. John is introduced in this vision to an angel who is pictured as standing on both water and land or land and sea. To the ancient audience, this would have represented the fact that whatever the angel is going to show John is going to be for the entire world. It's going to be for everybody. Indeed, there are writings back then that refer to the Jews as the people of the land, the chosen land, and the Gentiles as the people of the sea. And so this is something, this is symbolism saying this is for everybody. And so what does he say? It says in verse 3, And he called out with a loud voice like a, roar, like a lion roaring, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, John says, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. 
And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. Just like this. This was the posture if you were taking an oath. So he's swearing an oath. That's what the angel's doing. He wants to give this symbolism, swearing an oath. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. Okay, so the end is coming. No more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Let's just stop there for a second. It sounds like it's finally happening. The end. Once the seventh trumpet is blown, everything's over. We know that that takes place by the end of chapter 11. We actually read it last week. We know that that's going to come. And yet, as much as the angel says there's no more delay, it's not the end of the chapters before us. No, as we're shown so much throughout the Bible, even when it is said there will be no more delay, God is so long-suffering with his world, hoping that all would come to repentance, that indeed we are presented with what looks like just one more opportunity by which God will indeed seek to bring the world to repentance. So how's it going to happen? What's he going to do? Well, first we see that if the world is going to be brought to repentance, it will be through God's word. Look at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing out of the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's stop there. The scene that is presented for us here is really a scene very reminiscent of what you'd see with Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah called the prophesy to Israel in the Old Testament. Both of them actually discuss their call into prophetic ministry to speaking God's word as being a time where they were forced to eat God's word. That's how they talk about it. They had to ingest God's word. It's very similar terminology. John says that this word that he's just eaten tastes sweet, but leaves a bitter feeling in his stomach. Now, this is understandable, of course, and I think it's understandable for anybody who's actually had to present what the Word of God says. Because on the one hand, it is sweet. It, it is the means by which God delivers salvation to people. It's the, it's the place where you hear the good news of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there's a bitterness to it because there are hard truths 
that human beings have to hear. And so it can be both, and I think that's the symbolism here. Indeed, later on in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 11, which uh, we won't spend a whole lot of time on here, the work of the church is described by the symbolism of two witnesses that, quote, have fire pouring from their mouth that consumes their foes. Now, I don't think this is a literal reading. I don't think that there's going to be two dudes that show up in the end times and start spewing fire from their mouth. I don't think that's what it's saying. No, it's an allusion to the prophet Elijah who was able to call down fire from heaven and it was by the power of his word. And, 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 and it's an allusion to Old Testament characters. But the point is, the point is, if the world out there is going to come to God, then the means by which God is going to do it is going to be his word. And there's a big reason for this. It's because by the proclamation of his word, faith is created. We read that passage earlier from Romans 10 that says just as much. Sure, we can do other things. Church can be involved in, in uh, various social work. It's good work. The church can be involved in marketing campaigns, whatever. I mean, you know, you want to make your church look good, that's fine. There's all sorts of things a church can do that's fine. But if it's actually going to reach the world, it can't leave behind the Word. The Word of God is what has the power. Sometimes this repentance brought by the Word of God happens almost instantly. So, for example, to bring up Kanye West again in the sermon, why not? Let's go for it every other week. Uh, you may have heard that recently while he was in Houston, uh, he stopped by a prison there to perform and to uh, do what he's called his Sunday service. And somebody preached there. And there was video going around of a bunch of prisoners in this prison on their knees praying to receive Jesus and to become Christians. Sometimes it happens like that. I mean, I, I've seen it. I've experienced that. Like sharing what the Bible says with somebody. And I've, I'm telling you, I have seen a change in their whole persona. I've seen a change in their cadence. I've seen a change in their tone. Every, I've seen it. I've seen it. Boom. Just the light bulb go on. It is a great experience to see. It is awesome to see. I wish I saw it every time I talk to somebody about the Word. Most of the time, that's not the way it goes. Most of the time, it's a process. And the Word is doing its work slowly but surely in a person's life. And both are examples of how the word works. I've told you about my grandfather in this church before. He was my hero growing up. And uh, when I became a Christian, I desperately wanted to see him become a Christian too. And so I was constantly sharing the word with him. And no response, no response, no response, and no response. And then 15 years later or so, my aunt shares a couple sentences from the word. And he says, I'm ready. Let's go. I believe in Jesus. And yet he had heard the word many, many, many times before. The word is what God uses to bring people to repentance. So, so he sends John out with the word. What else is God going to do to try and bring the world to repentance? 
Well, God's also going to work through the sanctuary of his church. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Just as John did the same thing as Ezekiel by eating the word. Again, this is something that Ezekiel was commanded to do as the prophet. John is called to measure the temple of God. Now, in Ezekiel's day, the temple was the literal physical temple structure of Israel. But by this time, in the New Covenant, we're told by Peter and Paul in their letters that the temple of God is now the members of his church, the people of God. So we continue, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. What does that mean? What John is having described to him is exactly what Jesus actually said would happen when he prophesied that Israel's physical temple would be destroyed. In Luke 21, Jesus says when that happens, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Indeed, that very thing happened. We know this from history. Listen to this number. From June 67 AD to December 70 AD, 42 months, the exact time that John says here in this passage, the Roman army led by Titus invaded Jerusalem and did indeed eventually destroy the temple, not leaving one stone on top of another. Again, how long does John say this trampling outside of the temple will go on? 42 months. Now scholars differ on just how to interpret this based on really when they date the writing of the book. Some scholars believe that this book was written in maybe as early as the mid-60s to late-60s AD, and if that's the case, this is a, uh, an actual prophecy or description of the temple being destroyed in their midst right then. Could be. Most scholars tend to believe that Revelation was written in the 90s. If that's the case, well, then what this scene is being given to John for is to remind him of how, how terrible things will be on the outside as they were for the city of Jerusalem back then. And it's analogous to the way it will be in the world and the only sanctuary away from the problems will be the church. It seems that that would be held up through history. Indeed, all throughout church history, the church has tended to open its doors to, to all to serve as a sanctuary in wartime and during great tribulation. When refugees flood into a place, it's often been the churches that have been the places that will take care of these refugees. Even right now in various parts of Scandinavia, as refugees have poured in from war-torn Syria, it is almost overwhelmingly the churches 
that have been there to heal them and help them. And as a result, there are mass conversions being reported among Syrians in Scandinavia right now to Christianity. And yet, what will be the posture of the church as they go out to the world, as they provide this sanctuary to the world, in the midst of all this destruction that was described in previous chapters, what's the posture of the church as they present themselves? Well, look at verse 3 with me, and you'll find that it is a posture of humble repentance. Again, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, again, 42 months, it's the same amount of time, clothed in sackcloth. Now let me try and flesh this out. Who are these two witnesses? Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What does that mean? Well, this is a reference from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 14. There the lamp stand and the olive tree symbolized a king and a priest. Indeed, the way the church is described in its functions throughout the New Testament is as a royal priesthood that is responsible for bringing the word of God, prophecy, to the world. Now, again, some believe here that where it says in verse 3 that he will grant authority to his two witnesses, that in the end there will literally be two people that will go out from a literal temple in Jerusalem and go preach to the world. It could be. It could be. And if that is the case, many believe that those two witnesses are going to be a sort of re-embodiment of Moses and Elijah because of the description of what these two witnesses will do. They do very Moses and Elijah type stuff. It could be. And if one believes that, they're totally within their rights to believe that. On the other hand, because of the symbolic language associated with them, used to describe them, many also see these two witnesses, including myself, as merely symbolic of the church sent out to preach God's word to, to the world. Now, it doesn't really matter for our purposes here. You're free to believe either one. Here's the real thing I want you to notice. As, whether it's these two witnesses or the church, doesn't matter whether they're, they're going out with the word, what do they go out clothed in? That's what I want you to focus on. Sackcloth. Why is that significant? Well, you only wore sackcloth, this terribly uncomfortable clothing, as a sign of repentance to the world. In other words, the posture of the church is one acknowledging their own imperfections, their own need to repent as well. Here's the application for you, if you know, I'm not being clear and it's, that's entirely possible. Um, I get so tired of the church lecturing the world about how bad and evil and wrong it is. I get exhausted by it. 
Because all that seems to be amplified is what the church finds wrong with everything. And it never seems to talk about what's wrong with itself. Now granted, that might be unfair media coverage, whatever. Fine, fair enough. Even if that's the case, I think far too often the church presents itself to the world as superior to the world. Instead of coming to the world, as it were, dressed in sackcloth saying, there but by the grace of God go we. I'm no better than anybody else. I struggle with sin just like everybody else. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7, I mean, he's very honest, bluntly honest. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. It's a struggle for me. Man, I just, I really think that we get a lot further sometimes in the world if we, we approach them that way. If we, if we just said, you know what? I'm no different. I struggle too. I just have a Savior. I have a Savior, and I want you to have the Savior too. So these, these preachers from the church go out in a spirit of repentance. Let me uh, come to you in a spirit of repentance about something that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I met a wonderful couple from the church here uh, for dinner uh, on Park Avenue and 27th Street. And when we got done with the dinner, I had to get over to 26th and 1st in a very quick amount of time. It was about 7.53, and I had to be over 26 and 1st by 8 o'clock. And so I hailed a cab as fast as I could. And I got in the cab and I said, hey man, I need to be over 26 and 1st as fast as you can. He said, all right, I'll get you there, I'll get you there. And then, like within 10 seconds, he makes a left turn. Now the problem is, is that the left turn was clearly the wrong direction. So I'm sort of sitting there like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? And so I actually said, get it, what are you doing? I said, I need to go 26 and first. No response. To make matters worse, he makes another turn going further in the wrong direction. And I, by this time, I'm like, hey, I, I, hey, did you hear where I have to go? I have to go to 26 and first. And he just goes, I heard you. I'm like, but you're going the wrong way. I know where I'm going. We're going the wrong way, I say. And I'm trying to get him to stop. And he won't stop. And he's ignoring me. And I'm getting more frustrated. And so finally I say, you know what? Just, just let me out. Just let me out. Just let me out. I, I, don't want, I don't want to get too far away from where I need to go. Please let me out. And I'm trying to be calm. I'm trying to be cool. But I'm really upset because I'm already, I'm already running late. And I pay the fare. I get out disgusted at this terrible cab driver. And then I look up at the signs and I realized he was going the right direction the entire time. I was the one that was wrong. I don't know how I got turned around. I just did. I, I had no idea where I was at. I was totally wrong. And it just so happened, like 10 seconds later, as I'm in a stupor, feeling so embarrassed about getting so bothered about him going the wrong way when he was clearly not, I saw him again. So I thought, oh man, I gotta hail him and I gotta apologize to him. I feel terrible about, about you know, like how upset I was getting. So I, I hail him and he begins to pull over and then I see the look on his face as he notices it's me and he goes, and just speeds off as fast as he can 
because, well, frankly, he's sane. And uh, <laughs> now I promise I didn't. I was not. I was not aggressive with him or anything. But it was clear that I was trying to get him to stop the car and to turn direction. I was the one that was wrong. And here, here's the point: if you're wrong and if you messed up, and the church certainly has. Listen, it does no good to pretend, does no good to sweep it under the rug, it does no good to act like you're bad. Just acknowledge it. Just, just own it. You go a whole lot farther that way. The fourth and final tool God uses to bring the world to repentance. Well, doesn't sound like something all that pleasant, but it's death and resurrection. Verse 7. And when they, the two witnesses representing the church, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now who the beast is, we're not going to cover tonight because there's going to be a lot about this figure in upcoming chapters and I don't want to get too sidetracked by all of that. But all you need to know for the purposes of our story tonight is this is a powerful, satanic-inspired figure. I don't think that this is some sort of crazy animal or some sort of dragon creature. I don't, I think this is actually, um, I think this is representing like a world system, you know, a nation maybe, uh, or, or some sort of um, human operation, but it's just inspired by uh, the dark side, as it were. But we'll get into that in future chapters. So the beast comes, conquers them, and kills them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. This is most certainly talking about Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. In other words, as the church preaches God's word and provides sanctuary and even acknowledges their own shortcomings in a spirit of repentance, it still doesn't appear to work in winning people over to the Lord. Indeed, by this time in world history, the church is, is so hated in this picture given to us in chapter 11 that the world rejoices at the thought that the church may have just been defeated and is finally gone from the planet. And of course, this sort of stance toward the church has been nothing, it's nothing new throughout history. Throughout history, God's people have been pronounced dead in various cultures and states only to, only to somehow one day come back to life. It's never the end of the story, death. And so we read verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. This is all symbolic language, of course, for, for the vindication of the church in the eyes of the world. 
Just as Jesus Christ was vindicated by both his death and resurrection for the world, so too the church is vindicated in the eyes of the world through, through its willingness to lay down their lives and trust God to raise them back up again. There's all sorts of ways this sort of thing happens in our daily life. But of course it can be Christians literally being willing to lay down their life for the sake of others, even others they don't know. I can't help but think of the example of those who hid persecuted Jews and other minorities in Nazi Germany and throughout Europe those that they weren't related to, that they didn't know, but yet at the cost of their own life would keep them hidden. When the world sees such things happen, God uses it to bring people to repentance. Because in the final conclusion at verse 13, we read that at that hour there was a great earthquake and the tent of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. And look what finally takes place. And gave glory to the God of heaven. So in this interlude in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet before the end, God is still actively working to bring people to repentance, and it appears by the end of this chapter that to some extent it's worked. It hasn't worked with everybody. It acknowledges that there are some still that have not bowed the knee. But many have. And that is indeed my hope as we face the tribulations and difficulties and struggles of this world. That the church would be ongoing, going out and doing these things, using the word of God, providing a sanctuary, a safe place for people out there, going out in the spirit of its own repentance and being willing to lay down its life for the sake of others, that God would use such a thing as he worked through Jesus Christ to bring salvation to you. He would do such a thing through his church that people would come to see their own need for Jesus Christ for them. So let me wrap all this up here. Um, <clears throat> when, when my son, my first son, was about two or three, it turns out that the apple didn't fall far from the tree when it came to going to his room. I told you how I was. Well, I got to experience it. I remember one particular night I put him in his room and he just did not want to go to bed. And so he was, he, yeah, he learned the kicking the wall trick. <laughs> he started kicking the wall. And I learned what it was like from the other perspective to hear that and to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that horrible thing to my parents. And so I went in there and I said, you can't kick the wall. And I was, you know, very firm with him. And I closed the door and he kicked the wall again. And it's not just boom, it's you know, until you find it like ah, you know, you pull your hair. So I go in there again and he's got this time got tears in his eyes. So you can't you can't do that, you need to go to bed. No, I don't want to go to bed. Man, I love. You know, very, 
very, I just want to watch TV. I'm ready. Ready for the end of the day. But I put him back in his room. And again, this time, he's yelling, no, 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 no. He's kicking the walls. Like, man, God has uh, got a sense of humor. Give me one just like me. And yet this time, because he's screaming so loud, I hear him, he, he gets so worked up that I hear what sounds like him throwing up. And part of me is like, man, you did it to yourself. I don't want to clean this up. But then, of course, my fatherly instinct is, I can't let my, sit, I can't let my kids sit in there in his own mess, even though he's brought all this on himself. And so I walk in there, and I pick him up. I take off his jammies that are completely soiled. By this time, he's so tired, he can't fight anymore. And, and even though he's still, like, he's still got the, the sort of anger because of the experience that he's just had in his eyes, as I'm holding him, I can feel him softening up. And as I'm changing him, I can feel him softening up. And long story short, after I cleaned him up and got him in the bath and took care of him, it was when, it was when I held him and cleaned him that finally he was able to go to bed in peace, without a fight, without obstinance, and so I look at this story, I look at this interlude here, and I look at all of the story of Revelation, and I go, okay, th there's both in kinds of things here. God doesn't deny the need for the world to face justice. And he does. He's going to bring the unjust down. There's a, there's a space for that all throughout Revelation. But in these little interludes, I also see the tenderness of God as Father. As he says, describing his relationship to Israel and to those who have run away from him, I, I hold out my hand all day long to a stiff-necked and obstinate people. And he doesn't hold it out to punish, he holds it out to hold. And I believe as the church is used by God to be that hand, and indeed people will be brought to repentance in our midst as well. Lord, may it be so. Father, I ask now that you would bring all of us again to repentance. As we prepare to come to your table and receive the very thing we need to stand right with you, give us hearts ready to receive it in Jesus' name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory.